would you rather own a small piece of something huge or a big piece or everything of something much smaller? Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off on a road less travel, never looking back. Sam, where are you, dude? This looks awesome. You're at like a pool, a backyard, you're in the Hamptons. What's going on? I spent the weekend at my in-law's house in the Hamptons and I felt pretty sick yesterday, so I just stayed the night here. I didn't feel well, but I'm feeling fine <laughs> now. But I'm in I'm in the Hamptons. It looks good, right? I mean it looks amazing. Yeah, it looks like what I met. I've never been to the Hamptons. Not even close. Never got an invite. I don't even know anyone that lives in the Hamptons. Let so me let me tell you I'm my far opinion. Away. Okay, my opinion of the Hamptons incredibly overrated. You want to know another thing that's incredibly o- overrated? Central Park. Central Park so overrated. <laughs> Central Park and the Hamptons both overrated. The Hamptons not it's not that pretty. It's not that pretty at all. So very so overrated. So what's the appeal? What what is good about it? If you're in New York. It's only an hour, hour and a half away without traffic. So you can go to the beach there. So it's a little bit like uh, Sonoma or Napa. Like, I think those places are nice. They're not the best. They're kind of boring as far Napa as is, Napa and Sonoma are prettier than the Hamptons, without a doubt, in my opinion. Oh, okay. Interesting. And uh, do, you, like, do you feel different? You walk around, every car is like a Bentley yes. or better. You have to have a Range Rover to fit in. It's crazy, man. I it's not my style at all. It's very it's not it's not even remotely my style. Um did you see the Jake Fall, Paul and uh Tyrone Tyrone Woodley fight last night? Did I tell my wife I can't help with the kids' bedtime routine because I'm watching the Jake Paul fight? Yeah. I did that and I watched that fight and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It was an amazing fight. I thought it was um, a good fight. I thought Jake Paul, I had higher expectations. The the drama was there. I'm not talking about the technical boxing was great. I'm saying the drama was there. I didn't know what was going to happen beforehand. And then every round, it still felt like anything could happen, which is what you want. The drama was so high. My my anxiety level was equal to the best UFC fight. Like right. uh, like the best grudge UFC fight, my <laughs> like anxiety level was equal to it. I thought it was amazing. We had Jake Paul on the podcast. He uh, was way different on the podcast than he was in uh, like for the for this whole uh, boxing thing. But anyway, it was. I a was going to tweet it out. I was like, "Hey, uh, congrats to to guest of episode one hundred and seventy on your victory tonight." <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a, it was a fun fight. I'm happy uh, I got to watch it. It was more it was more intense than any UF as intense as any UFC fight I've ever seen. It was pretty badass. They've done an amazing job. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, so they for for those who don't know or kind of just roll your eyes, at, uh, you're watching Jake Paul and, and, and Jake Paul fight this guy. Is this rigged? What's the point of this? Is any a YouTuber? Like, I got a lot of respect for what they did. I'm pretty impressed by this. I think that. This move they did to go from YouTuber, Viner to YouTuber, and then YouTuber to basically one of the best business models you can do as a, uh, as, as a single person is basically sell pay-per-views. And uh, why is that, right? So like this fight, I wouldn't be surprised if they sold a million pay-per-views. And so you sell a million pay-per-views at you know, roughly 60 bucks a paper, uh, you know, per pay-per-view. Um, you know, that's $60 million. And then they partner up with Showtime to do that, do that whole thing. And so, you know, they can make 10 million bucks in one hour doing this, right? In, in basically a single event. 
And you, you, that's totally different. And it, and it grows their brand. Like this whole thing makes them more famous because ESPN is talking about it and Twitter is talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. And uh, they're doing kind of like a hobby that they like, which is boxing, right? They train hard. So it's not easy, but man, is it lucrative. So like pretty impressive jump from one platform to the next. And as a business person, I think they're geniuses. I think they are, whether it's intentional or unintentional, they are geniuses. Uh, the way that they approach this, the way that they promote these things, the way they leverage the brand, it's genius. Also, getting in a ring in front of a million people, getting in a ring in front of 50 people, it's incredibly frightening. Now, to do it with someone who's like, even though Woodley is at the, yeah, he's <laughs> at the end of his career, he's 40, he fucking kills people. Like, he yeah. crushes people. Like, he could, he, you definitely could die. I mean, it's not likely, but you could. And right. that's incredibly bold. And so, very likely you could get humiliated, knocked out brutally by this guy, you know, in front of everybody. Yeah, 100%. And so I do think it's incredibly courageous, even though it, it, whether I agree or don't agree with like a lot of the shit they do, it's wild. I can't believe they pulled this off. It's wild. It's incredibly wild. The crowd on TV, I've been to like three or four or five, I forget how many UFC fights, and I've been to some of the big ones at Madison Square Garden. The crowd on the TV, like on the in Cleveland last night, yeah. felt the same as when I saw a UFC fight, like the same energy. It was pretty wild. They built this. They, yeah, they, they did it. They pulled it off. Um, I also went to uh, a live uh, MMA fight, a local one here in San Francisco. Where? Uh, in the uh, the Dragon Den? Dragon House, yeah. So amazing. You went to one? I oh, went to one together. This weekend, I went to one. Uh, I've been to, to a to bunch there. It's badass, right? It's way scarier than UFC. Way, way more intense. So, so we get cage side seats because they're only 50 bucks, right? So like, the, yeah. the, you know, it, it's not a huge stadium. It's Kizar Stadium. It's a very small place, but... Uh, we went there, we get cage side seats for 50 bucks since COVID, you know, started. And they said like, oh, everybody's got to be vaccinated. They didn't check anything at the door. So that was not so great. But I walk in and the crowd is just lit. I don't know what. Okay, they're so all, I think there's, well, they're all like super drunk. It's, yeah. So it's, yeah. So, so I think there's like four or five factors going in. So first of all, it's their friends fighting usually. <laughs> so like there's a whole in every fight. There's at least like 20 people that are there because they're friends with this person because these are amateur fights. These are people who by day, you know, they deliver for DoorDash or they like work at a, you know, consulting company or whatever. And then this is like a nighttime fight club thing for them where they just like decided, screw it, I'm going to try this because um, I get there early. I get there for the amateur fights. Before. I find those way more interesting than the pro fights. And um, so first of all, there's, there's 20 people that for that, that's their friend, that's their brother, that's their kid. I'm seeing moms just yelling, like, kill him because it's like their son in, in, the, in the ring or whatever. Second thing is, um, it's like people are drunk. Yeah, so people are drinking. There's only like Dude, one concession stand. There. If one concession stand and it's only beer. <laughs> so like, well, the they, only only sell, they only sell beer and Costco pizza, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like beer and things that make you want beer. And then third thing is... Um, I think so. Well, I think the third one would be I'm so used to like you're in the Hamptons right now, dude. I I just hang out online on tech Twitter and crypto Twitter. And like the group of people I normally hang out with are so nerdy and like they're, they're just concerned about different things. The priorities are different. I went to this thing and everybody's like super dressed up, like not like fancy, but they were dressed up like I might, I might meet someone here. Like this is like a club to them, right? Um, I just feel like everybody here, it was like more real people than the like kind of bubble that I usually live in. And so it was just different. It was like shocking. There was three fights that broke out in the crowd 
just after after a fight would be done, a fight would break out in the crowd. And I'm sitting there with my sister and my brother-in-law, and we're just hoping it doesn't happen near us. And the last thing was COVID. Like, COVID, I think, has riled people up. Like, when I came in, I was telling my brother-in-law, I was like, dude, this crowd is way better than the last time we came to Dragon House. He goes, dude, people are ready to live. He's like, people <laughs> were just ready to get out. And you could see it, dude. People were just like... I don't know. I don't know how the kids use the word lit, but people were lit at this event. This was the whole event was lit. It was insane. I love going to those. I've probably been to three of them. Were the Mongols there? I guess they weren't there because uh, they can't travel. No. no, I've been there, and there's they have there's like a large like contingency of Mongolians, and and they have their one, family there. There was one Mongolian fighter, and he yeah, his crowd was like his crew was pretty crazy, and then the, he fought this Irish dude. And I, I swear to God, it was like Conor McGregor came out. As soon as the guy comes out, it's like, ole, ole, ole. The whole crowd is chanting ole. I'm like, where did this huge Irish contingent come from? He's got a tattoo silhouette of Ireland on the side of his body. He gets in the ring and they had a crazy fight. And so it was, it was a lot of fun, first of all. So if you have like a, I don't know if people, I don't know if it's only for people who like UFC, but if you like the UFC, which is like maybe 1% of our audience, go no, to a I local bet, I, show. I bet it's more. Go to a local show. I, I didn't think it would be this good. It's like amazing. It was like truly it, amazing. But it also it made amazing. me feel like, what is it about people who, why would anybody sign up to do this? And then I know you are the type who you sign up to get punched in the face quite a bit. What's the appeal and would you ever do this? Well, I signed up for a smoker. So what a smoker is, is it's uh, amateur. So there's no judges. And typically you can kind of have like in a, like you can like say ahead of time, like, Hey, I'm new. You're new. Yeah. Like you're, you, you don't actually at the fight that you went into, they're going in with bad intentions. You know, they right. want to hurt you with the, the thing that I signed up for. Sometimes like you'd be like, Hey, let's, let's get after it. And you'll try to knock people out and you might get knocked out, but it's like not nearly as angry. And you could like say, Hey, you're, we're going too hard. Let's take it easy. So I've it's like up above for a the, sparring session. It's above a sparring session, but it's not a, quite a real fight, or at least it doesn't have to be. And I signed up for it because it makes me feel alive. It makes me feel uh, like I feel soft when I just sit in front of the computer all day. It makes me feel good to survive getting beat up because I know that I'm not going to be stressed out about anything else that I'm going to do throughout the day. Because like when I stress out about like this podcast, or if I get mad that our freaking internet wasn't working really well, I'm like dog i just got my ass kicked like like yeah. this like everything else is fine exactly i went skydiving once and we did it in the morning it was like eight in the morning and so the rest of the day like you know from 8 30 onward skydiving only lasts like five minutes like you just you fall for 60 seconds and then you've kind of float down gently for five minutes and then it's over but the rest of that day i was like I couldn't be bothered by anything. I was like, dude, I jumped out of a plane this morning. You think I'm going to worry about this presentation I have or this person who didn't call me back or this person who cut me in line? Like, bro, I, I flew. I was flying in the air this morning. And so it was like, if I could bottle that feeling up and have it more often, which it sounds like you get by, by sparring or whatnot, that's pretty good. I also have been rewatching Breaking Bad. So did you watch Breaking Bad like once? Yeah. So I just, I just started rewatching it. And uh, it's like enough years have gone by where I kind of forgot it. And that's basically the premise of the show. The show is basically this guy lived kind of his whole life, you know, by the book and was like always like kind of just like worried about, you know, he didn't want to offend anybody, didn't take much risk, blah, blah, blah. And then when he finds out that he's got, you know, a few months to live, he starts doing this stuff initially to help his family. Like, how do I, how do I provide my, for my family if I pass away? I don't want them to have nothing because I'm just a teacher. I didn't save up too much money. And then... 
once he starts to do it, it starts to feel good. He starts to feel alive. And so this has become kind of like a theme I'm thinking about. And like, if we want to tie this to business, I'll, I'll force it here, which is there's probably a whole set of products or experiences that just make somebody feel alive. And they're kind of counterintuitive. Like, why would you choose to get punched in the face? Why would you choose to take this risk and almost get caught by the cops? And then how do you bottle that up and package that in a product or service so that because I think a lot of people do want this feeling. And once they get it, I think it's very addictive. But I would say that that's what you do with a lot of your investments, right? Like when I think about what you're doing with an NFT or what you're doing with crypto, to me, it's a high adrenaline, high risk uh, <laughs> type of thing, right? Uh, kind of. I think you'd think I take more risk than I actually do. But, uh, but yeah, I, I could see that. That's definitely a piece of it. There's a bit of the roller coaster that you get to go on and a roller coaster is for a thrill seeker. But I just think in general, like, you know, we were in L.A., I went to Disneyland. Why are there even roller coasters, right? Well, because people in 30 seconds, you can get that feeling like you might die and then you live. And that little package that thrills, it taps into this thrill seeker part of people. And I, I just feel like there's probably more experiences that could be built that are like that. I think if you're building in VR, for example, instead of trying to build a VR like kind of like fantasy land, I would build things in VR that make people feel a little bit afraid, a little bit scared, a little bit alive. And I think a lot of video games try this, right? Like, that's why a lot of video games are about shooting people and stuff like that, because it's, it's cool and it's an escape and it's something you can't do in real life. So you get to like, live vicariously through this. But I just think there's a lot more that could be done. So instead of talking about fear, can I tell you something that I read recently that's it's about happiness? Can I tell you something that totally like, kind of like, I read something recently and it, the data seems pretty clear and it totally like goes against what we've been told previously. Can, can I tell right, you about so, that? So lay out, lay out what we've been told and then what you saw. So, the, you know, there's these like things that you see headlines. So one of these headlines is like the average American doesn't have $500 in savings or something like that. Right. That's, right. That, that's, that's mostly bullshit, by the way. That, that's right. a bullshit headline. But the other one was that after you make $75,000, your perceived happiness level doesn't really go up significantly. And I read about that a while ago. We read about, I mean, when did that come out, you think? Like in 2012 or something, 2013? Uh, yeah, I feel like I've heard this kind of my whole professional life. So maybe at least 12, 15 years, something like that. I've always thought that that was bullshit. I've always thought that was bullshit. Um, for <laughs> it a, did, for it a, didn't uh, pass the sniff test for you. Not even a little bit, not even a little bit. <laughs> and so I came across this study. And so what these guys did was they got 40,000 people to install this app. And this app at random times would ask you, like, on a, they would ask you a bunch of questions, but it would be on a scale of like one to five or one to 10. I see you're highlighting the app. You could click it and you could see it. It's called and, Track Your Happiness. Yeah. And, and it's pretty cool. It's just a simple app. And what they did was they got 35, 40,000 people and they ranged, they had all types of ranges. And they asked people how they felt during different periods of the week, of the day, and they would track your income. And what they found is, is that while it is true that after you get past a certain point, your happiness levels doesn't necessarily uh, go up in proportion. But what this study found is like up until like five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a year, it it was definitely still going going up. Like yeah, we can we can show this graph if, if you're watching on YouTube. We'll put this graph on the screen, and it's basically two lines. It's your uh, life satisfaction and your uh, experience well being, and uh, they're both. Like from $15,000 of household income up to $500,000, they're tracking like up and to the right, just like a straight line. So 
the more income you were getting, the more sort of life satisfaction you were having um, during, at each step of those. It didn't just plateau at 75,000 like the, the old kind of like that quoted quoted study is. And it may like the difference between 2 million and 3 million probably won't be significant. But like, according to this study, like the difference between 10 million and 1 million is significant and does impact your happiness. And that totally like kind of broke my frame, even though I always thought it would be true. I thought this study was actually really interesting. And there's a few reasons why a few reasons why basically the other one was nonsense was the first one was remembered feelings. So the $75,000 study, basically what they did was they asked people how they felt in the past. And that's kind of bullshit because you always think that you remember uh, things better than you actually did. Or like during during one period, you'll think it's great. And then you'll say how you remembered it and you'll think it or sorry, you'll during the time you think it's horrible, then you'll look back and be like, oh, that was actually awesome. Right. This actually asked you right then and there how you felt. The second thing was before it said, were you happier then or were you happier now? And that's kind of nonsense because there's no variance. Like the variance is right. too low. And like, you know, sometimes like it could be a well, I'm a little bit better and that matters. And so that's it's what too binary. Is. It's, it's just it's, yes or no. There's no like there's no granularity. Yeah. So. I don't know. I thought this was interesting. I wanted to bring this up because that's one of the it's one of those studies that I always thought that people base like you read this headline and you believe this to be true. And a lot of people probably make decisions based off of this. And I think it's important to say, no, that's I think it's bullshit. And, and you shouldn't base your life on that data or that study. Right. Yeah. 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 And I, I like uh, I love this topic, by the way. I think it's great. It's sort of like myth busting of these like common things you hear. Like uh, another one is like the 10,000 hour rule that got really popular because Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book called Outliers. And he's like, oh, you know, to be great at something, you got to spend 10,000 hours. And uh, and so then a lot of people run with that. And it's like, well, there's obviously a bunch of caveats, but like the caveats get stripped away as the thing just gets kind of like turned into a fortune cookie tweet, right? It's like 10,000 hours. That's the rule. And um, and sure, there's instances where somebody spends 10,000 hours and gets really great at something, but there's definitely instances where it doesn't take 10,000 hours to get great at something. I've had many of them in my life. And uh and so you want to like, I guess, question a lot of these things that you're told and try to figure out what what's the truth and what's the truth for me? What am I going to experience? What do I choose to believe? And so I'm with you on uh, on looking into stuff like this. I also think this app is cool. This Tracker Happiness app. I'm going to actually use it. At my previous company, when I was running the Idea Lab, I, it was my first time uh, like as CEO of like a larger group. We had like 20 something employees. Uh, at that time. And that was, I was 25 years old. It was the most people I had ever managed. And I was like, okay, well, how do I manage people? I was like, well, there's a whole bunch of books on this, but I created something pretty simple. I asked one of the programmers, I went to this guy, Quinn, and he's like this young hacker guy. And I was basically like, hey, Quinn, I would love to know, I would love to just kind of like, if I could go have a conversation with each person each day saying, hey, how are you feeling? Uh, How's it going? I think I could be a better manager, but that would take way too much time. And it would just also be like a full on conversation with each person. I said, can you just set up a thing so that at the end of every like workday, so at like 4.30 PM or whatever, it just pings everybody individually in Slack. And it just says, hey, Sean, uh, how are you feeling today? You know, one to 10. And uh, what, what's your happiness right now? And it would just, uh, it would basically do what this app does. And they would put it in. And then I had a dashboard as the manager, as the CEO, that would show me all these different people. And what, what I found was two things. The first is some people have a very r- narrow range of emotions that they feel. So like there was like our CTO is this uh, British guy, Paul, and he's a, he's very kind of like stoic. He's sort of like, you know, like British people sort of dry humor. 
And so like he never got too far, too high up, too high down. Like he was always like a, you know, like a seven or an eight. <laughs> he didn't, he never hit a 10. He never hit a five. He always stayed in that range. So I had to interpret his data differently because I was like, for this guy, his self-assessment of his own, like kind of like happiness or well-being, his, his range is different. So I can't just say, oh, eight, you're good. Eight is actually great for him. And a seven is actually quite bad for him. Whereas for other people who were like, you know, the hot mess folks, it's like some days it's a one and some days it's a 10. And I had to interpret them differently. So that was the first observation. The second was when I would go and uh, I, I could, I could ping them afterwards. I could just say, you know, it could basically ping them once they submit their score, I would say, cool. Do you want to add a note on why? And the reasons that affected people's happiness were so different than what I would have expected. I thought people would be unhappy because, you know, they feel like underpaid or overworked or, you know, maybe their colleague sent something to them. And it was always like the smallest shit. It's like, like what? It'd be like, you know, it'd be something like, oh, you know, uh, at lunch today, uh, you know, I whatever, I, you know, this table was full. So I kind of had to go sit over there or it'd be like, you know, at, uh, you know, we, we're working on this project. I really wanted to get more done, but I got a phone call. I got distracted. It's like. They were like, some people were like, real, they, some people got off on high output. And so their happiness was like, it's like, oh yeah, we had to do that team meeting. And so I didn't get to go work on my product. I didn't get to write enough code today. Or it'd be like something really, really small. It's like, yeah, I'm really dealing with this kind of like back pain. So this chair is really uncomfortable. It was always things that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. And so it brought those to the surface. And then I could decide, oh, is this something I can affect and like improve? Or do I just like, at least I get a better understanding of them. So that was like one of the better products that we built. We probably should have productized it and made it an actual like work tool for other people to use. Yeah. I used to use this thing called 15.5. You remember that company? They're doing pretty well, dude. I think they're, they're pretty successful. I bet they, I, be, I would bet they are. So they kind of like went quiet for a little while. And, and typically that means it's failing horribly or it's actually quite large. Like it's usually like one or the other. Uh, <laughs> and so it, it was called 15.5. And basically they would send you five, the whole product. It was very simple and it's probably thrived during COVID. But right. basically they send you an email every day and it takes, is it 15 questions that are five minutes to answer or it's 15 minutes to answer five questions? One of those. And yeah. that's all it is, is they just send you an email at the end of the day and they say, what did you get done today? How do you feel? Yep. And that's all the product is. And I would imagine that it's quite large. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it raised at like $130 million valuation recently or something. So, you know, maybe that's a little out of date. That's 2019. So I bet it's doing, doing pretty well. Uh, all right, let's do a different topic. What do you want all to right. talk about? Let me tell you about a different uh, a different company that I recently discovered. So it's called ESRI. Have you ever heard of that? No. Sounds like a government agency. Kind of. Okay, so ESRI. So basically, there's this entire uh, sector, this entire industry that needs important map information. If you scroll all the way down to where it says felt, you'll see where I am. Yep, but yep. basically, the idea here is... Um, there's this company called ESRI. It was started in the 1960s. It's 100% owned by this one guy and his brother. So 100% owned by the same family. No debt. They've never taken any outside funding. You can't find anything about it. It does over a billion dollars a year in subscription revenue. And basically what it does in is... In subscription revenue. Nice. Yes. Um, it's software. It's a so I, guess it, I guess you could call it information, but probably at this point, software. Because it started in the 60s. So at the time, it was basically information. But what it, what it does is very simple. So 20,000 plus cities use it. So most cities, most like reasonably sized cities in America use it. Most states use it. Most Fortune 500 companies use it. And what it does is they have loads of um, 
of information on maps. And so if you're a government and you want to build new gas, new new pipes or something like that in your city, you're going to take their data and you can also give them more data and that's going to give you an interactive map that you can use to figure out where the other pipes are and you're going to be able to build this 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 pretty complex system that you can continually use year over year that's going to show where your pipes are it's called geographic information system you never heard of ge- uh, you never heard of that term GIS yeah i've heard that yeah, I thought for sure you would have heard of that. So um, it's almost like uh, Google Maps on steroids. So in the same way that Apple, or sorry, the like same B2B, way that... It's like B2B Google Maps. Yeah, so in the same way Uber uses one of the Apple or either uh, uh, Google Maps, this is what like the city of like the Hamptons would use when they're building new right. roads and when they're building new electricities. Now, th- th- there's a few reasons why this is interesting. One, it's one of the most complex and one of the most interesting family-owned businesses I've ever seen. Total monopoly. So, and the way that they got their monopoly is they go into colleges, and so they work with engineering students. They've worked really hard on making sure all the colleges they give their software to for free, huh. so the engineering students start using it at a very young age, and they're used to it. Then, when they graduate, they go, "Oh yeah, let's just use ESRI," and so they know exactly what they're doing. And it has a total moat, also, because selling to a government is impossibly hard. It's incredibly difficult. Why? Because when you're a government, you want to make sure that the vendor that you're using takes 100% responsibility if something f's up. And so when you're like signing up, if you're a government employee, if you're working at a Fortune 500 employee, you want cover your ass insurance. You know, you want a company that's like well known and like not new and like they're going to take responsibility if something bad happens. That's ESRI. Crazy fascinating company. But I'm curious about which businesses are going to, because whenever you see something old, you know, from the 1960s as a software company, you think, well, like surely they're like, you know, you can't crush it forever. Also, the founder of this company, ESRI, he's probably worth $10 billion at this point. I think he's like, 85 years old so he's gonna die he's gonna they're gonna lose its way like this is just inevitably how it works Dude, this guy's I, name by the way jack dangermond Sick is name. that his name right this D- dangermond i mean come on that's uh how know, old is I he see, i can see why people are, don't want to compete with this guy uh he's pretty old i don't know he doesn't look he's like he's 80 it looks like he's you know well he's rich 60 70 something like that uh yeah personal fortune four billion dollars himself yeah, and he started with his brother when he was like 27. Crazy fascinating business. Crazy fascinating business. And ne- I came across never this- taken a cent outside of a $5,000 initial loan from Dangermon's mother. Crazy, right? Crazy yeah. fascinating wow. company. And and he seems for I mean, uh, you know, what I read about him, he seems like a good guy. Him and his wife, he, so he's an environmentalist. So he started this because he cared about like uh wildfires and things like that. And he was building software to help create maps that um somehow reduce wildfire, which I'm going to explain in a second. But basically, there's a new company. There's a bunch of new companies coming out. The first one is called Felt. So go to felt.com. It totally is not... I went to this. It looked... It looked, it looked. Well, this is like an early access site, but my I saw it and I said, oh, this is kind of interesting. So I started looking into it. I read your notes on it. This Felt thing seems pretty cool. Are you investing in this? This seems like kind no. of awesome. No, I, I, we just, I've, I've never talked to this person. So it started by a guy named Sam Hashimi. He's, his first company was called Remix. It was a city transportation planning startup that he sold for $100 million. And when he was doing that, he learned all about the uh, uh, inadequacies of like basically using maps and creating maps right. for your service. And he said, well, I'm going to try to create a better map business, uh, something that uh, um, people can uh, add stuff to. And it's almost like, uh, where where ESRI is like Google Maps, this is like Waze. So people can contribute to it if you use it. Uh, kind of fascinating. And um, it seems very, very interesting. And I always like these old school companies. I mean, I lo- like this company, this guy Jack started. I think it's badass. I love seeing the new guys that are going to try and take this and, and kick their ass. I think it's very fascinating. 
Yeah, this is cool. I, I like this a lot. There was a company called, um, what's the name? They're based in, they spun out of like this lab. Hold on. I think you actually might have their name here. It's And, and uh, while you're looking for that, so Felt, it, they describe it as the world's first collaborative mapping tool, and it serves a wide range of use cases. So I imagine, they haven't said this, but I imagine actually anyone can use it. A user can use it. So if you're going hiking with your friends, if you're planning a trip, you're allowed to use this. I imagine what they're doing is their grand scheme, though, their, their niche, their wedge is to help wildfires uh, uh go down. And so the way that you could do that is you can actually use data and you can figure out where wildfires are, where they're going to happen. And then cities will pay money to use your mapping data in order to reduce wildfires. And I imagine what they're going to do is they're going to create this really cool because if you go to felt.com, it looks very um, user focused, whereas it, it's they're going to make all their money from B2B. So it doesn't look the same. It doesn't look like a B2B product. I imagine what they're going to do is like, just like ways to going to let the consumers use it and map out really interesting shit. And then they're going to go and sell the data and mapping tools to B2B uh, to businesses. And that's how they're going to win. Crazy fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think it's cool. So the company I was thinking is called Descartes Labs. And uh, what this, I met the founder of this at a dinner. He was telling me about it, and I was like, "Wow, this is kind of amazing." And this became one of my one of my misses. I was like, "Oh, I, sh I really should invest in this." And at the time, I wasn't really investing super actively, and I missed the boat. I think this has become like a very big company, but at the time, I was like pretty convinced that this is going to be a winner. And um, why why is that? So they spun out of Los Alamos uh, Alamos National Labs or whatever, which is like in New Mexico or Albuquerque or something like that. It's like this, like it's kind of like you know NASA or something like that. So this is like high, highly kind of scientific community. They spin out. They create this commercial company um, that's called Descartes Labs. And what they do is they do satellite imagery. So they would basically take, I, I don't know if it was their own satellites or other people's satellites, but they would take the imagery of like, cool, there's this image from a satellite of a field. And then they could run all kinds of machine learning and like kind of computer vision and, and different like more modern technologies on top of that. And they could give a hedge fund an idea of how much corn yield there is this year. Or they could give, you know, so it's like, if you ever watch Billions, they, they, they kind of do some yeah. of this sometimes where it's like, oh, well, look how many trucks are leaving this factory. So before the earnings call, I can figure out, you know, how much volume they're doing because I can see the rate of change from before to after, things like that. So, th so they have a whole bunch of different products. But basically, at the time, it was like, they, they were like trying to figure out how to use it. I think he told me the story. And I, this is many years ago. So I may be getting this wrong. But I think what he told me was, at the time, they didn't have that many customers, but their business model was basically just betting on like, futures of corn crop yields or something like, like that. Because they're like, they're putting they, their own, they were their, their own balance sheet, they were just betting, basically. And they were showing that, like, look, we can actually generate returns using this strategy, because that's how valuable our data is. And I think since then, I, I think that was early on when they were like, just making the technology and playing with it. But um, either it was them or them and a partner doing that. And now I think they have a lot more customers who are looking for this, whether it's like, you know, an agriculture company that has some need because they need to predict, you know, the way that the world is changing, the way that the, 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 the way that um, anything, any data that you can get from satellite imagery is basically what they do. So I really like that business model as well. Some people are doing that in terms of getting satellites into space and other people are doing it, taking the satellite imagery and making more sense of it making more getting more actionable like data and insights from that did you say the name of the company in front of the founder the name of what company oh you that, know? no he told me am i saying it wrong I, I, <laughs> is it like french you, <laughs> have you heard of the philosopher uh, descartes what's the, yeah what's the french philosopher's name rene descartes 
Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. What did you call it? Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Descartes. Yeah, it's Descartes. It's like it's like the I don't I forget. Uh, Rene Descartes. Is he the guy who said I think, therefore I am? Uh, anyway, it's. Well, I think, therefore, uh, I know. I, I know that I, I got that pretty bad, pretty badly wrong. I, I met this guy years ago, so I don't even fully remember the, the idea. I just remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. All my friends are making like apps to like order pizza and like to-do lists and stuff like that. And this guy's basically taking satellite imagery and looking at it. And it, my, my two takeaways were, I should probably invest in this guy. And the second thing was, why am I not doing something more interesting with my life? Uh, because that sounds way more cool and interesting and like probably valuable than competing in this competing around ideas that everybody has and that everybody could kind of do. And so that was a, a you know, a takeaway I had during that process. Um, you want me to keep going or you want one? No, do one. All right. Let me tell you a quick story about a guy named Wayne Hazinga. I love Wayne Hazinga. I read his book. I believe it's called uh, Building Blockbuster. So there's this guy named Wayne Hazinga. Where, all right, now I'm going to sound uncultured. Is he from... I always get it confused. Holland and the Netherlands and Dutch. Are they all the same thing? <laughs> Dutch is a way to describe people, I think, from the Netherlands. I think Holland might be a part of the Netherlands. I'm not sure. Dude, I don't know. I'm sounding uncultured. Uh, I'm sorry. But it, what, what does it say? What does Wayne Hazinga say? So he's of Dutch descent. We'll go of with Dutch that. descent. Came All to the right. United States from, so, Nether- from the Netherlands. All right, good. All right. So he's born in 1937. All right. So listen to the story of this guy. Born in 1937, parents divorced at a young age, went to the army. And when he was in his 20s, he started this company called Waste Management. Basically, he had one moving truck or one truck, and he started a waste management business where he would just go from door to door, throwing away your trash. And eventually, like after only a short amount of time, like two years, he starts realizing that these, uh, this, this business is incredibly, um, there's, a, there's loads of small players who all just own little bits and pieces. And he goes, well, fuck, I'm just going to buy all of them. And so he starts buying a, a shit ton of them, something like two or three a, a week. Um, and his business eventually be called, has become waste management. Today, it's got a $64 billion market cap. It's uh, the biggest waste removal uh, company in the country. And it's incredibly big. And he left that in 1984. So he built this huge business. And you'd think, all right, so uh, that's great. Go and chill. Next, when he was still in his 50s, I believe, he starts a company called Blockbuster. And so this is in 1987. He, uh, bought, he found one Blockbuster. It was one Blockbuster store. He bought it. Uh, with a little bit of money, and he took it public like two years later. So this guy's like a financial arbitrage machine. So he's like, he's really good at raising money and deploying capital. And so he raises this money. Right. And so Blockbuster, after like two years, it has seven million dollars in revenue, nineteen stores, and then in just a handful of years, he gets it to four billion dollars in revenue in three thousand stores in eleven countries. And eventually, he sells it to Viacom in nineteen ninety four. This is about uh, eight years after starting the company for eight and a half billion dollars. And so it's pretty crazy. And if you would have invested twenty. And so he would let some friends invest. And if you would have invested $25,000 into uh, Blockbuster when it went public in uh, in 1987, it would have been worth about a million dollars when they sold. So he's pretty amazing. I mean, he's he's got a good track record. So He also started something else, right? He also started automation. Yeah. So the guy... All right. So he's in waste management. He's in Blockbuster. At this point, he's in his 60s. You think, all right, now you're just going to (laughs) chill. Absolutely not. He starts AutoNation, which is at this point, it's the largest seller of used cars in America. So he went from waste management to Blockbuster to cars. 
And then throughout this whole period, he's also doing the same with resorts. So have you ever heard of uh, Extended Stay America? I believe now it's no. owned by Marriott. You never heard of Extended Stay of America? So basically no. they've got they've got something like five, six, seven hundred uh, motels that are nice enough that you could stay for like uh, a handful of, or for like a month or like two, four weeks at a time. He started that. He also started a bunch of different golf clubs. And then in the 90s, he eventually buys the Miami Dolphins. And I think he bought another Florida. Uh, what's the Florida football team? Wait, the, so that's the Dolphins. And then he bought the, the Florida Marlins, also the baseball team. The Marlins. Uh, pretty amazing. Is this, and, and, and so I always was amazed at this guy. And um, the reason I was amazed at him is he had an incredibly positive attitude when he was doing this whole thing. And so here's a few things. What, here's a few quotes that I have from his biography that he talked about for his philosophy. The first, we made small acquisitions in different states around the United States. It was just easier, faster, and cheaper to go in and buy out a guy who was already established in a market, even if it was very small. Then I'd hire a bunch of salespeople to go out and do the internal growth. The plan was always to have internal growth, but in order to get internal growth growing quickly, it was sometimes easier to go out to a certain market and just buy, uh, buy a guy who had three or four trucks and say, okay, let's do this on our own. And that's what he did over and over and over and over again. And he did it in all those businesses except for Blockbuster. But even then, he did it with Blockbuster because he started the brand but, uh, and they grew on their own. But eventually, they started buying like loads of different mom and, top, mom and pop movie stores. And this was his whole strategy. There's another guy who did this. His name is Bradley Jacobs. He's uh, is worth like 5 or $10 billion. He did this over and over and over again. And I think that there's still a ton of room to do this. So wh- uh, what, what other industries could you do this in? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm not entirely educated on the topic. But I think... I think you could do it for all types of moving businesses. Because moving businesses, there's not actually one leader that you trust who's like the best, right? It's like a lot of mom and pop stores. Um, what other industries could you do this like consolidation stuff in? I mean, these roll-ups happen kind of in every industry. I feel like people have done it with dentists. dentists right, now, right now, dentists is like the hottest thing going. There's also like pet, you know, uh, vet, vets, uh, you know, veterinary hospitals or veterinary clinics. There's pet cemeteries that somebody has told us about that that's like a, a pet cremation basically is like another one that you could do again fragmented market there's a, there's a lot of these there's rural wireless internet service providers there's uh, there's a, a huge number of these where in a local market there's somebody who has maybe not a local monopoly but a, a large local footprint and uh and going in you can't it's very it would be it would be too expensive to go in and try to rebuild that it would take too long and be too hard to do that in a small place. So you buy it at a fair price, but you buy a whole lot of these and you make the the sort of the sum greater than 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 the than, than the parts. And so I think this roll-up strategy is one of the more like I would say intriguing ways to build a monstrous empire. Like otherwise you kind of got to build a, you know, build a Facebook, build a YouTube. It's very hard to build a multi-billion dollar individual company from scratch. I think it is far easier to execute one of these roll-ups and create, you know, $100 million, create even a billion dollars of value in, you know, five to 10 years. It doesn't interest me personally, but if I wanted to become a billionaire, I think that this would be the, one of the lower risk ways to get it done. Um, 100%. Murdoch did this with local newspapers also. So Rupert Murdoch, this is kind of what he did, local newspapers and then local radio stations, local television stations, whatever. He basically bought local media companies. And then aggregated them and rolled them all up and created like giant, basically News Corp, which is his his like mothership brand. Um, so yeah. By the way, this guy Wayne Hazinga, if you're watching on YouTube, put put this guy's face on here from his Wikipedia. Looks like an evil Steve Ballmer. So that that's what this guy looks like. Bradley Jacobs, the other guy you mentioned, who's done this with uh, XPO Logistics and a couple other companies. 
literally looks like couldn't be a sweeter, you know, someone's sweet, sweetheart dad who, uh, you know, coaches the local soccer team. Uh, I, I love looking at these because I think to do this, you've got to be pretty, I don't want to say ruthless, but extremely aggressive, ambitious, a great deal maker. And um, and and you're moving like at a freight train's pace. And so I love to meet these people. Now, you can't meet them sometimes. I love to just even look at their photos and just just, th- just read their bios. Who is this person? Where did they come from? Because it takes a very specific attitude to be able to go do this with self-storage or local you know, landscapers, pool construction companies, you're rolling them all up. I've read a lot about uh, both of those guys, and I've seen them talk um, on YouTube. And my opinion of them is that they seem highly ethical. They seem incredibly high energy, super high energy. And they seem very entrepreneurial, even though they both look like Wall Street suits that don't like create. These guys definitely are creators, even though they buy stuff and you think, well, that's not like you're not inventing anything. And maybe they're not inventing anything from scratch, but they're definitely creators. Um, And I because I remember I saw that guy, Bradley Jacobs, and I saw what he looked like. And I'm like, dude, this fucking suit like he's just like he's just some arbitrage square. And he's not. He totally. Uh, he's a he's a creator, and it's really interesting. He's maybe not like Mark Zuckerberg, where he's like coding shit, but he's a different type of creator. And I really like these types of folks. Doesn't this seem a little low? This guy's net worth was two point eight billion when he died. I feel like how is this guy's net worth so low compared because to uh, doing AutoNation, waste management system, doing uh, doing uh, Blockbuster? Like how is that? How does that add up? I think that the number that we have there could be wrong, but I think it's wrong. What I read about in his biography was that with uh, with waste management, because they raised so much money and because they bought so many companies, they simply didn't own that much of it. I mean, they owned a smaller piece of a massive pie, and they were okay doing that. And so, when he started waste management, and when he left, uh, he was the largest uh, individual shareholder, I believe, but he probably owned like single digit percentage, right? Yeah, even just owning the Dolphins, I feel like the Dolphins themselves are going to be, you know, five hundred million to a billion dollar franchise. So, so that seems a little, little low. But yeah, this guy's definitely the Billy of the Week. Uh, extremely impressive career. Uh, you know, shout out to uh, to this guy. He passed, looks like he passed away yeah. uh, a couple of years ago at age eighty. Um, so you know, respect. Okay, what what else do we want to talk about? I have a, a I have another kind of fast growing company I think is worth talking about. This right, thing go. called Picasso. Have you seen this? No, I'm going to Google it. Is that how it's spelled? Picasso, yeah, P A C A S O. So, two execs at Zillow spent, spun out and created this thing. I think a year ago, and it's already worth one or two billion dollars, kind of in startup valuation world. So, I think they created all that value in basically a year to year and a half. And um, and what does it do? It's basically a fucking timeshare. So, what they do is they buy homes, they convert them to uh, LLC, and then they sell fractions of that home. Um, to investors. So they bought like, you know, let's say a house in Napa Valley. They go buy a million dollar house that converted into uh, slices of one eighth. So you can own an eighth of this house for whatever, $125,000. You can buy a piece of this home. So you're a fractional homeowner uh, and it's meant to be for second homes. So you don't do this for your home. You do this for your like second, your vacation home. And, uh, when you buy that one eighth of the house, that gets you 44 nights of a stay um, in that home for the year. And you can either use them yourself. You can gift them to others. I think you can rent them out or get, let them rent it out for you. And this company takes this insane rake. So they take 12% of the purchase price uh, up front, just straight off the bat. 
And then they charge you a monthly management fee because they have the app that you and the other owners use to coordinate who's booking what, what's the, what's the rental share, what are you, how are you sharing expenses, all that good stuff. And if, you know, if the house goes down, you, uh, you know, you're on the hook for it. They took their money up front. So I thought this was kind of an incredible riff on a timeshare that uh, I'm surprised, frankly, I'm surprised is growing this fast. I didn't, like it doesn't, it's not something I look at and I say, that's awesome. I wish I had done that or thought of that idea. I actually think this is kind of dumb. What do you think? So timeshares, I mean, timeshares is a huge business. I, I like the idea of a timeshare is not bad. I would, I would be into owning one. It's just that I don't want to go like through the sleaziness of, 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 you know what I mean? Like you don't want to sit through the webinar. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go to the seminar. So it's, it's weird. So I think it could be cool. Why is it worth so much so fast? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, they've grown. You know, so Picasso valuation. I saw it because there was a big protest going on. So Picasso raises seventy-five million, goes from launch to unicorn in five months. So I think part of it is what was the protest? Um, what's that? You said there's a protest? Oh, the protest was basically like in Napa, the home that they bought, the neighborhood was like, yo, what is this? Uh, like, we don't want, uh, we don't want this. We don't want this like timeshare rental. We don't want all these different people coming through. Why, why are they doing this? And so, um, so they basically, you know, they were, they were trying to like, they were trying to say, hey, timeshares are not allowed. And what this company says is it's not a timeshare. In a timeshare, you own a block of time in this, you actually are a part owner of the home. So it's different than a timeshare. And then people were like, dude, you can't just call it cooperative ownership, make up a new term. And like, it's a timeshare. And so it, they're kind of going back and forth uh, about that. So the guy who started, his name is Spencer, Spencer Razkoff. Is that how to say his name? So he started. And, well, and Austin Allison. So she's actually the CEO. They were both execs at Zillow. So yeah. So one of the co-founders name is Spencer. Have you seen what this guy's done before? No, I, the name sounds familiar. It wasn't he one of the original like founders of, of Zillow? Like, he, yeah. So uh, check this out. In '99, at the age of 24, he founded Hotwire.com, a leading travel internet company. I mean, obviously, that's, right. well, that's hotels, right? They sold it for 700 million dollars. Then he started Zillow, and he took it public. He was a CEO through its IPO and bought loads of different companies. Uh, he's resigned in 2020, so I guess he's out entirely. Uh, then he started Dot LA, which is a media company for uh, California startups. So I guess that's kind of like a passion project. And then now he started Picasso. Dude, this guy's prolific, and he's on the yeah. board of Palantir. So, this guy. So I think like a, this is why it's worth a billion dollars because it's like, oh, the ex CEO of Zillow is doing this new real estate thing. Cool. We're 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 in, and we're sort of price insensitive on uh, the valuation. So I think it has more to do with the team than it does probably the traction in terms of that valuation. Yeah, this guy's a badass. I mean, he's he's a hardcore badass. Would you would you want when I think of these types of things, these companies that raise all this money, we talked about Zillow or we talked about this company Picasso and th this guy looks like Spencer, that's his hey, history. He's also a podcaster. <laughs> he's got the Office Hours podcast. There you go. Oh, we should have him on here. Spencer, if yeah. you're listening, come on. Do you think that do you like this strategy of raising would you rather own a small piece of something huge or a big piece or everything of something much smaller? Um, I don't think about it that like that wouldn't be the deciding criteria. If if it was just between those two, I would rather own the whole thing of a smaller of a smaller thing. I find it to be uh, more fulfilling. And I think economically you end up doing better. You have more options because when you own a small piece, 
of a bigger thing, if it happens to go a little sideways and doesn't have big unicorn exit, doesn't go public, doesn't get sold for $3 billion, uh, it's very easy to kind of walk away with very little because you raised all this money. So now you, you have the first $100 million go back to investors and maybe you only sold it for, for 70 or something like that. Whereas you owned like a huge amount of the hustle. I yeah. think that path is better because you could sell for $12 million and walk away with $10 million, you know, like out of it. And so, and so I think it's a, it gives you more options on how to build your wealth. Now, that being said, there's something fun about building something massive and going for something that's like truly game changing with three extra zeros on the back of it. So like, you know, I respect both paths. If, if I was picking between those two, I would own, I would want to own more of a smaller thing because it gives me more options. What do you think is easier? Oh, for sure, owning uh, owning a small thing. Now, easier in one sense, which is it is easier, I think, on a day-to-day basis because you don't have to worry about fundraising, shareholders, other shareholder management, and you can, again, you can exit for smaller amounts. The harder part, when you go rate, like these guys just raised $75 million, they're not going to feel like they're like roughing it <laughs> every day. Whereas when it's your company and like, I don't know, you probably ran payroll for, you know, uh, the first well, year of the hustle. And, um, and you probably had to worry, like, let's say, you know, advertisers pull out, you know, you probably were feeling that pinch because you were more or less bootstrapped. You raised a little bit of money, but like, I don't think you ever felt like, you know, you have this huge cash cushion that you can just fall back on. Well, yeah, I did not. But my opinion, I, I normally would have agreed with you, but well, we had Mark Laurie on the podcast and I taught, I had a lot of his coworkers reach out to me after the podcast. And basically Mark Laurie's our judge.com. And what he's done is he, uh, he, what was his vision? He had his like, he had this like phrase and I forget the phrase, but it, it was like vision capital people. Is that what it was? Yeah. It, it, that's his, uh, his, his fun name now. So we can look it up. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, Vision capital people. Yeah, you got it right. VCP. Vision. And so he like, that was his whole premise. He's like everything. I come up with the vision. I get the capital. We get the people. That's what we do. And when he says that, I'm like, that, like, what does that mean? Like, that's a pretty like vague, fluffy thing. But I started talking to people who worked with them and they're like, he did that so well where he would raise all this money. And he really like, he did a lot of work, but it wasn't like, it, he wasn't like doing like, 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 like you know, the shit that you do when you're just starting out when you don't have any money, you know, uh, uh, like I, I ran my own payroll. I did all the banking. I did, uh, you know, I would go out and get all the vendors. He was like, he just like hired amazing people and they did most of the work. And he just took care of the hard part of like selling people to, uh, join the company and selling people to give them money. And I thought about that. I'm like, dude, that does sound so easy. Yeah. It sounds pretty (laughs) awesome. It's not that it's easy. It's awesome. That's how I'd put it. Nothing's easy. Anything, anything valuable is typically, you don't go to it because it's easy necessarily. But, um, I, I, I'm totally with you. I, what's, what's more fun, a small vision or a big vision, a big vision, right? What's, uh, what feels better having a lot of ammo and, you know, in terms of capital or being strapped for cash and always work, not only having to worry about how to get customers and grow, but can we pay the bills every single month? Yeah, definitely. On the other side, if Sean wants to fuck off for a little while, you can do that. Yes, you know, exactly. You, you can you can you can bail so, for a so little. So I optimize for freedom. I optimize for freedom above above most things. And so, like, if you ask me, would I rather work? My my dad taught me this a long time ago. He told me once because my first startup was a sushi restaurant chain, and I was like, I was talking about you know why it's fun and blah blah blah. And he goes, he was trying to convince me to come work in the energy industry. He's like. 
he, he worked at BP. So he worked in the oil and gas industry. And he's like, he's like, you know, the minimum is like, you like to play poker, right? Now, when you go to a poker table, you can either sit down with a hundred dollars or you can sit down with $10,000 or hundred thousand dollars. You're still playing the same game. You're still going to sit there for six hours. He's like, it's why not play the bigger game? And he's like, in the energy industry, the minimum stakes are in the millions. Nothing happens in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like you're saying a, a restaurant, one location, if it works, can produce $100,000 a year of net income or $125,000 of net income. He's like, why not just, he's like a small project and a big project. If you make it your, your obsession, which is what you're going to do when you go start a startup, they both take the same amount of time. They're both going to be all consuming. All right. So might as well do the one that has the bigger payoff. So when he said it like that, I was pretty sure, like, that's why my next start, I, I stopped the food thing and I went and did a biotech company because he was right. In biotech, like, our, we made one deal and it was worth $5 million. And I was like, wow, that would have taken us like five years and 25 locations to do in the restaurant industry. And this was like one, one great meeting, one great presentation and like, you know, a year of technology development and boom, $5 million came through the door. So I kind of got to taste both sides of it. And so if I was going to, a big project and a small project both take the same time, a big project's more fun. But what I don't like is big companies because in big companies, I feel like I lose my freedom of my time and my energy of how I want to spend my day. And so that's why I'm trying to find this mix of my perfect situation is I work for myself and pretty much by myself but I'm working on things that I feel are big and can pay off big. And the, with the world of the internet, that's now possible. One of the most expensive mistakes I ever made. So Trends now makes millions of dollars in subscription revenue. It's a really good business. Had we made relatively minor changes, like not that different. Like it wouldn't have cost us more money. We maybe would have had a few more people. And we right now we charge three hundred dollars a year. There's a world where it wouldn't have had to been that much different, and it definitely would have been a similar amount of work. We could have charged thirty thousand a year, right? And I didn't understand <laughs> that for a long time. Now I completely do. Where it's like, it's well, I actually, remember we were talking about that with HustleCon when you were doing HustleCon. The HustleCon ticket was what, two, like two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, something like that. Yeah, on average. And you had told me, because I was like, dude, why are you doing this like events business? You're like, dude, events businesses can be big. Look at this one. Look at that one. And I went and looked at them because you were right. They did actually like make tens of millions of dollars. But I was like, dude, the ticket price of this is three grand minimum. And it looks like they have a $15,000 ticket package for like some people. Yours is like 10 times cheaper than that. And you were like, yeah, we should, we could. But you didn't feel comfortable going that route or whatever. I don't know what your reason was. Because you knew well, it. Yeah, I knew it. I was being a there's a few things. One, I was a pussy. So I was just I was being fearful. And number <laughs> two, when I started my company, I was like 24. What I don't and I never had a job before. What I don't understand is how these young guys, uh, like people who are 21, 22, 23, like when the folks who started box.com, which is an enterprise yeah. cloud company, they were like 20 or 19, like in college still. What I don't understand is when you're a 19, 20, or in my case, I was 24. When I thought about the company, I was like, well, like I don't have any money. I would never buy something that was $2,000. Now that I'm older and I have more experience, I realized, well, $2,000 is not a lot of money. And so what I don't understand is how these young guys who are in their early 20s and don't have a lot of experience, how they even fathom that someone's willing to spend all this money on their product. They're either just courageous or they have more faith. I don't know what it is. But I, but kudos to them because when I was 24 and starting my thing, even though I could have charged way more money, and I tell everyone to do it now, I did not have the courage or the knowledge to do it back then. 
Right. And you see now, because you're inside HubSpot, you see yes. how much companies spend on just stuff. Like what amount of money, it's like, it's like going to a really wealthy person's house and then you see them tip, you know, you tip, they tip some guy a hundred bucks or they, you know, they buy this, this fancy espresso machine for $8,000. It's like, oh, these are normal expenses for them. So then when you're on the outside, you're like, I should be charging a lot more. But when you've never been inside one of these big companies, it feels like a $3,000 ask, dude, I better be giving them like my, you know, my left arm. And it's like, actually they feel more comfortable with larger price tags. And that's like. Yeah, in fact, a three hundred dollar product is a little bit off putting to them and sort of strange to them. Yeah, it's and it's like disrespectful. It's like, dude, this <laughs> this thing isn't good. Charge more. Right. So, like, when, knowing what I know now, and, and I think uh, Mark and Dreesen had like, I forget, like, this is it, it was a very like headliney quote, but it was something like, if Mark and Dreesen had one advice for his uh, his startups, it would be simple: charge uh-huh. more. He right. goes two words: charge more. And uh, because most startups do what I did, you charge way little, uh, way less than you should because you, I don't know, you're trying to be cute. I, I don't know what it is. It, it's just, it's cuter to be cheaper. Uh, but well, it's like it's insecurity, dumb. right? Because at the beginning, you're yeah. like, oh, I just want some customers. It's not that big of a deal. Then you kind of, then that becomes the anchor point that you mentally anchor to and the market anchors you to. And then you're afraid if you raise, raise prices, everybody's going to run out the door. Um, you know, what happens if I raise these prices? I'm going to get complaints. People are going to quit, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it's, it's really like a form of insecurity. And it's like a corporate insecurity. And, uh, and so if you're out there, uh, I, I tweeted this the other day. I was like, if you're working at a company, go ask for a raise today. But Do you think but, anyone but, did that? There, there's a cycle. I just got a promotion. Go ask for a raise today. But I'm, I'm, I don't know. I haven't really proven myself. Go ask for a raise today. Everybody should go ask for a raise inside of a big company. Why? Because there's almost always wiggle room. Like, like when I was hiring, they, would, they had what they called a compensation band. What does that mean? It means for the same role, we can pay this much on the low end or this much on the high end. And guess what? You start people low or in the middle of the scale, and then you flex up when you need to. When do you need to? When they ask for more money. And so like, so there's already in your exact role without getting a promotion, there is more money that can be had. The second thing is what's the worst that happens? They say no. And when they say no, you might learn something. They might say no, because like they might give you essentially a soft hell no. What's a soft hell no? Hell no is sort of like they say no and they, they're like, look, if you want more, you can go elsewhere and get it. That's kind of a, you're not so valued here. Like go for it. Or there's a no that's like, look, we love you. We value you. I would love to give you more. I just can't right now because of X, Y, Z, or can you demonstrate, can you hit these goals? Because that will help us build this case. And Hey, you're one step closer to making more money than you were before you asked. And so, or they say yes. And boom, you get more money. Like there's no, there's no loss. I was, uh, except if you work for me, don't come ask me for more money. That doesn't count because I gave this advice. So don't ask me, but you know, other people, this is for other people. I was notorious at the hustle because when people would ask me for a raise, I'd always say yes. It was, <laughs> I was horrible at confrontation. I just said yes to everything. I'm like, oh my God, I don't feel like dealing with this. That yeah. is not true, dude. You told me a hilarious story. We can bleep this out if you don't want to tell it. I don't know if you remember me, you, and, uh, and our friend Suli, we were at uh, Della Rosa or we were at some, some restaurant. And you told us the story of, okay, bleep this. Do you remember this? No. <laughs> I don't remember it fully, but you were just like, um, no, and you can leave if you think that. And, and uh-huh. it was just like, it wasn't just no, it was like, you don't understand. Like, 
You oh, understand. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so like the story was no like, <laughs> well, yeah, so I remember this. So I should rephrase this. When people do good, I'm, I say yes to everything. When right. people do bad, they're like, well, I want to raise. So I'm all right. So you're like, you are a machine to me. <laughs> that sounds horrible, but it's like, <laughs> look, like our business is a machine and like humans are like part of the input. Humans effort are part of the input. Right. And you're asking me for a raise right now. I think that the money that you are paid like breaks even. So like we put money into this, into this machine. Right. We put the input same amount out. and we get the same amount out. If I'm going to give you more amount of money, I'm putting more input. How much bigger is the output going to be? Cause right, right now I don't think it's, I don't think that it's worth it. And so I don't think it's worth it. It's and and so if you don't think that that's fair, then you should go to some other machine and figure out where that input can have a bigger output. Because right now it ain't working. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I love that. I love that because a it was honest. Uh, <laughs> b it was a little bit brutal, and uh, you know it wasn't like. I would say you have many many super strengths, like A plus skills. Like I would pick you over anybody. Uh, softly wording. Things is not not one of them, <laughs> so I found it to be super funny. But it, but really, again, even if you find that information out and it hurts in the moment that this person says, "Look, it's not like it's not on the table with the way things are currently at." If you find that out, you know that's a good that's a good piece of information. It hurts in the moment, but it's a good piece of information to know because you might say, "Shit, I need to create more value here." What would it mean? And you can have a conversation. You can say, "Well, what would I be needing to do?" for you to feel great about paying me double what I'm making today? That's a question you can ask. They might not know the answer on top of that, but they'll come up with it. They'll, they'll help work with you on it. And then you'll realize, oh, that's where the value is created in my business. And so maybe in this machine, that's where the machine needs the oil. I should go oil that part of it and create all this new output. And then of course, they'll give me some more because I've created all, I've created disproportionately more value out of it. And so it's a good conversation to go have if you haven't had it, you know, with, with the, people you work with. All right, good. Well, let's <laughs> see how many we're going to do that. Um, all right, good pod. Yeah, let's get out of here.